0: Welcome to Cornerstone Church of Parker and our Sunday service webcast, which is connecting you to God's Word anywhere over the internet. We're glad you're joining our webcast today, and pray that God will minister to you as we share His good news in Christ Jesus. And now, with a message from God's Word, here's our speaker for today. Your face up here with your Pastor Mike on vacation, but uh, Pastor Mike called and asked if uh, if I would be willing to. Uh, preach today, and I'm honored, to My wife, Joan, and I, uh, we have the privilege of traveling around the Rocky Mountain Ministry Network, which is comprised of uh, churches in both Colorado and Utah, 167 churches. And so, typically, each weekend, we uh, find ourselves uh, ministering in, in, in one of those churches. And uh, so, I've, I've been here before, back when... Uh, Pastor David Gerzen was your pastor. Uh, Pastor David and I go back. We were um, friends together in Bible college. uh, Back when uh, Pastor David and Kathy got married in Fruta or uh, Clifton, Uh, Joan and I were there to uh, celebrate that. And so uh, I preached here. I think it was like five years ago was the last time that I was here. But it is an absolute pleasure to be back uh, here at Cornerstone Church. And I just... uh, uh, say God bless each one of you. Before I jump into my message here, I had an interesting experience this week. Uh, we live in Colorado Springs, and uh, so with the heart of the military, there's are just uh, all these military bases and so forth. And uh, if you've ever been out to the Air Force Academy, it's uh, kind of your tax dollars at work. It's just wonderful grounds, it's just kind of interesting to see the buildings, the architecture, the... The chapel at the Air Force Academy is just uh, incredible. But uh, there's a new building, uh, well, two or three years old, that, that looks like the tail of a uh, uh, of an airplane. And this building is at, at an angle, and it's called Polaris, North Star. And this building uh, from the inside points directly to the North Star with uh, circle openings uh, where at night you would see uh, the North Star. And it's uh, a high-security building, And uh, but my sister-in-law, who is a retired uh, lieutenant colonel uh, in the Air Force, uh, was with us, and we were able to uh, make way to, uh, to go inside this building. And uh, inside this building, there's a boardroom where if a cadet is... Um, is on trial or being accused of anything, he sits at the head of the table uh, with those that are um, uh, considering his case with a glass wall behind him where family members can listen to the proceedings. And so as long as the proceedings are go on, the microphone is on where the family members can hear. But where this uh, cadet sits um, it, it, as he looks up, the, the way they've designed this boardroom, there's, there's a giant circle where the cadet looks at the North Star. So from that place, uh, he, he sees that by just looking up. And then just slightly below, that is the inscription that says, we do not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those among us that do. And then... Um, with, uh, you know, with the inscription and with the North Star right there, uh, they conducted their hearings with family members listening in. And uh, uh, it's interesting. And then when they, um, when basically when he is done, they shut the microphone system off so the family can't hear the proceedings. And once they come up with a ruling, they turn the microphone back on and the family and the cadet Together here, the uh, the result, and so I just found that really interesting. You know, just kind of this whole concept of uh, of a moral compass, a north star, something that points you in in a direction and just helps you to uh, to keep focus. And so this morning, I want to uh, share a message with you. I saw that your series. uh, Well, Pastor Mike told me that that your uh, series is Foundations rebuilding our relationships and theology. So he, when, he, when he gave me that statement there, I, I, I began thinking uh, of a message that I would like to present here today that is going to deal some with relationships and some with theology. And want to talk about uh, kind of that, that moral compass that we have in Jesus Christ. And uh, I want to talk about the value of healthy relationships, the, the need for forgiveness. It, it sometimes in the church is treated as though it's optional. It's not. And then the value of uh, friendships in our life and how that God uses Uh, friendships in our lives to bring about transformation in the lives of those that are apart from Jesus Christ so I'm going to be dealing with a, a few of these I'd like to start by reading a short little clip out of Max Licato's book entitled Just Like Jesus he tells the story about a lady who had a small house on the seashore of Ireland at the turn of the 20th century she was quite wealthy but also quite frugal The people were then surprised when she decided to be among the first to have electricity in her home. Several weeks after the installation, a meter assessor appeared at her door. He asked her if her electricity was working well, and she assured him it was. "'I'm wondering if you can explain something to me,' he said. Your meter shows scarcely any usage. Are you using your power?' Certainly, she answered, each evening when the sun sets, I turn on my lights just long enough to light my candles. (laughs) Then I turn the lights off. She's tapped into the power, but doesn't use it. Her house is connected, but not altered. Connected, but not altered. That's an interesting statement. We within the fellowship of the Assemblies of God believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and we believe that when we are connected to that power of the Holy Spirit that indeed our lives are altered. Our lives are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. But unfortunately for too many believers um, they can be connected to the power but yet their lives failed to show any alteration and so this morning I want to talk about um, four gentlemen in the New Testament whose lives were ultimately connected to the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus Christ and whose lives were indeed altered and how they altered the lives of others. The first one I want to deal with is the person of Stephen. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and beginning at verse 8. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 10 says, But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin, and he was, um, well, God empowered him to become a very skilled debater. His accusers brought all of their accusations against Stephen, and yet his accusers could not stand up against the words that the Spirit gave Stephen to speak. His accusers basically had no defense at all. Then you turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7 of Acts in verse 54 says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, that was Stephen's testimony, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's an interesting statement that Luke makes here in the book of Acts. When when Luke makes this statement that... um, Uh, how Stephen sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, we have throughout Scripture, in many places of the New Testament, we see that Jesus' rightful place of authority is seated at the right hand of the Father. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 69, it makes this statement, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then again, over in the book of Mark, chapter 16 and verse 19, and this is just as Christ is preparing to ascend to the right hand of the Father. It says, so then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. Well, years ago, when uh, I was a Bible college student, uh, I mentioned to you that I I, I knew your former pastor, David Gerzen, when he was uh, at Bethany Bible College, and that's where Joan and I uh, met, was at Bethany Bible College. And I remember one morning in chapel, we had chapel five days a week, uh, uh, the weekdays, and we would go into chapel every day and we would listen to the speaker. And every once in a while they brought in a musical group and uh, we would just worship together. And on this particular day, I remember a musical group. I don't remember the name of the group, who they were, but I remember that they, they, they came and it was a wonderful time of worship together. And at the very end, as we were applauding, Naomi, one of the students sitting up near the front, stood to her feet. And typically, when one stands to their feet, others ensue. And before you know it, you have a standing ovation. But on this particular day, Naomi was the only one standing. And I just remember at that moment just feeling embarrassed for her, uh, just being the only one standing. And we were all applauding, but she was the only one standing. And so I would say, you know, a standing ovation of one is not really impressive. Unless that standing ovation is Jesus Christ. And here is Stephen. And as Stephen is about to become the first martyr of the church, and before that first stone is hurled in his direction, he looks up into the heavens, and he sees Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. And so he knows that is, he is received into the presence of God, that he's doing so with the approval of Jesus Christ. And so, Stephen indeed becomes the first martyr of the New Testament church, and he lays down his life for what he believes. He's given a very clear testimony of his faith in Jesus Christ. And who is overseeing? the murder of Stephen, Saul. Saul Saul's the second person I want to bring into the conversation here today. Saul was the single largest threat to the New Testament church. Realize now on the day of Pentecost, okay, so when when, uh, Christ died, he arose from the grave, and then you have those 50 days before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the New Testament Church in Jerusalem, and so this is in Jerusalem. So this is not uh, ancient history. At this at this point, you know, when when Stephen was uh, crucified, it was shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so the true Church of Jesus Christ was only in Jerusalem. That's where it was, and. So here is Saul who is um, overseeing the death. Turn to chapter 8 of, um, of Acts. Acts chapter 8. And the first verse says, And Saul approved of their killing him on that day. Great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 4 goes on to say those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. You've heard the expression unintended consequences. Well, with Satan, I would have to say here was some unintended consequences. Satan is trying to squelch the testimony of the early church. And he empowers Saul to oversee the death of Stephen. And so at the stoning of Stephen, with Saul's approval, it scared the New Testament church, this newly found church, is scared for its life. And rightfully so. And so the scripture says that that they scattered. They went everywhere. Judea, Samaria, and what we know is the uttermost parts of the earth. And wherever they scattered, verse 4 tells us, and wherever they went, they preached the gospel. So the unintended consequence was Jesus had intended his church to be strengthened to be unified, to expand, and to be strengthened through transformation. But he allowed that to happen through struggle, through the death of Stephen. And so, through this death of Stephen, now something that Satan intended for evil, God uses for good. And God uses the death of Stephen to cause the church to, to scatter. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Now, that's an important point that we'll come back to here in a moment, how the apostles, the disciples, um, all stayed right there in, in, in Jerusalem. There's a ministry life lesson here. Um, because the um, early church scattered. And uh, I, I look at what happens today when there's persecution and to know that those who are part of the persecuted church, which you cannot consider the Church of America to be really part of the persecuted church. I don't doubt that that day's coming. And it may be sooner than we think where there will be real persecution for our faith. But just the very fact that we could convene in a public manner here today with no fear of reprisal for sharing boldly our faith proclaiming Jesus Christ it's not the church underground you know we have the privilege of meeting and I thank God that we live in this wonderful country with the freedoms uh, that, that we have to express our religion and our beliefs but the persecuted church to hear people that are part of the persecuted church they typically do not say when they ask you to pray for them, they typically are not asking to pray for the persecution to go away, but they pray that God would help them endure the persecution. There's a big difference. Because in our life, when storms come our way, God is able to take them all away. You know, I think of him on the on the boat with the disciples with the storm. And Jesus simply stands up, uh, waves his arms, and says, "'Peace, be still.'" And the storm was calm. God can calm the storm, but most oftentimes we have stories like you have later in the book of Acts, I think it's 27, where Paul's going through uh, the shipwreck and uh, they're in this storm for a few weeks and they pray for God to calm the storm and God doesn't calm the storm, but he delivers them through the storm. And I think that's more often what God does in our lives is he doesn't always take the storm away, but God is there to be with us through the storms of life. And so whatever you're going through, whatever struggle, whatever trial, uh, you know, if just because God hasn't taken this, this affliction away from you, it's not a reason to throw in the towel, you know. I mean, God's wanting to teach us perseverance. So look at Acts chapter 9. flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So on the road to Damascus, Saul in Encounters this transformation that it 's hard to find another parallel in in scripture of of the of the transformation that just takes place like instantly with saul and uh, so now we know that um, uh, later in the book of Acts uh, we see him going from Saul to Paul, and so there 's a name change that takes place when um, Um, when we see him becoming the great Apostle Paul. But on the road to Damascus, Saul was transformed when, when he had this encounter with the risen Savior and with the power of the Holy Spirit. So here is Saul becoming the Apostle Paul who now is connected to the power of the Holy Spirit and indeed whose life was incredibly altered by that power. It brings the third person into it of the four that we'll talk about. The third one is Barnabas. Chapter 9, look at verse 23. It says, When he, and this being Saul, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how that Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So in Jerusalem, remember all of the believers scattered but who stayed behind? It was the apostles, the disciples of Jesus Christ. They're the ones that stayed in Jerusalem. So as they stay in Jerusalem, now here is Saul, who they all know was overseer of Stephen's death. They know that Saul has gone to Damascus to round up believers in Damascus that are preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring him back in to imprison them in Jerusalem and so the disciples or apostles are rightfully so scared of 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 Saul they don't believe you know uh, it's it's like this could just be a ploy to say you know hey i'm a believer now and have everyone kind of come out from underground you know uh, and, and 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 then imprison them so the the disciples are indeed very skeptical so it was Barnabas who paves the way for, um, for Paul's effective ministry. Without Barnabas, none of this, uh, it, it, I, well, I shouldn't say it wouldn't have happened. It would have had to have happened differently than how it did happen. But Paul and Barnabas developed this very close relationship with each other. And Barnabas and, um, and, and Saul's relationship was so close that it really just appeared to be unshakable. These guys were just, um, were just so tightly knit together. In Jerusalem, Saul needed a friend, and he found one in Barnabas. Barnabas validates Saul's ministry just by believing in him. And you know, there's an interesting point just in that right there, uh, and I think that it's a, it's a ministry life lesson that we can all learn, that sometimes God just simply wants you to believe in someone, that he's got a special calling on their life. Uh, you don't need to know all about what the special calling is, but you can validate that here is a person who's got character, who is a man, a woman of God, and just believe in, in in people to build them up, and that's what Barnabas is doing. His name is Son of Encouragement, and he is such an encourager. He's encouraging the disciples to listen to Saul. So Barnabas, um, Barnabas brings him to the apostles. Um, and he tells the apostles all about him, and then verse uh, uh, 28 said, So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. The only way that Saul was able to have that freedom was because of his friendship with Barnabas. Well, Barnabas, he was willing to take a risk on his newfound friend in Damascus. And he knew a little bit about him. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us right here, but you can read in the book of Galatians that in Damascus, um, it it, it talks about that then, that there's a three-year kind of training period for Saul before he goes to, uh, to Jerusalem. So a little bit of time has elapsed, but still... The disciples were very leery of him, even though it was a few years after Saul had left. Uh, but, but Barnabas is there just building him up. So turn to Acts chapter 12. And let's look, at, um, let, let's look at this verse here, 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John also called Mark. John Mark's the fourth person I want to bring into this message today. John Mark was a young man that was filled with ministry potential. Now, when I was younger, in my 20s, and had the privilege of going off to Bethany Bible College, that it's closed, the school's no longer open, um, that's where people like me with the calling of God in their hearts for ministry could go for ministerial training. But back in the day of John Mark, there were no institutes, there were no universities to learn from the word of God. And there was no New Testament. The New Testament was being lived out, hadn't been written yet. And so here is the young John Mark with the call of God. And he's a young man, but He's going to learn about ministry by going with Barnabas and Saul on their first missionary journey. Now, at the back of many of your Bibles, you have maps. And usually under the maps category, one of the maps is Paul's missionary journeys. And so you look and you can see that on the first missionary journey, uh, when you read those passages of Scripture, you'll see that it it, it was... um, Paul, then his name was Paul, not Saul, Paul and Barnabas, and they take John Mark. Now, Barnabas and John Mark are cousins. And so Barnabas, the encourager, he took a risk on Paul earlier, and the risk paid off with the other apostles. And so now he's taking a risk again. He's wanting his younger cousin to be able to come with them on this missionary journey and uh, to, uh, to to learn ministry and to be kind of mentored by uh, Paul and, and Barnabas. But here was a young man with a lot of ministry potential, but he's an interesting person to study in Scripture because apparently John Mark came from a wealthy home. And it is believed that in Acts chapter 1, when the believers were all together in one roof and you have then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and you have all of the believers gathered in the upper room, it's believed that that upper room may have been the home of John Mark's parents. And if that's the case, now I'm not, uh, I'm not going to say that for certain, but if it's, if it's the case, it would just lend more credibility to the fact that indeed John Mark comes from a wealthy home there would have been servants there would have been everything at his beck and need he would have had access to as a young man so when John Mark goes on this first missionary journey he's leaving by as a uh, he's leaving behind as a young man all of the comforts of home so um, here, here's the point. So in, in, in chapter 12, verse 25, it says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So here is John Mark's introduction to ministry. And it's one of the points that I want to also make. I, I, I feel like in this storyline, there's a lot of kind of like ministry life lessons that we, that we can all learn here. The Holy Spirit uses people in our lives, and He intends for us to help bring about transformation in their lives. So hopefully all of your friends understand how I say this. Please don't misunderstand me on this point. Hopefully all of your friends are not Christians. Hopefully you know some unbelievers. Uh, you rub shoulders with people whether it's at the grocery store the clerk whether it's your neighbor across the street that doesn't know Jesus I mean hopefully there's people in your life that that doesn't know the Savior that you can be a part of through your life through your testimony through through the way that you live your uh, life and conduct yourself would be influenced to want to follow the way of Jesus Christ. I think of my mom years ago on an airplane. She was flying home from Springfield to Southern California to LAX, and uh, there was a layover. I think it was the Dallas airport. It was a late-night flight and um, on the um, the flight from Dallas uh, to LA. My mom was just hoping to get some shut-eye and just hoping, you know, this plane, they, they announced it's not full. You can sit wherever you want. Um, yeah, just find, find your seat so my mom knew that she would have some peace and quiet but this lady um, that gets on the flight after my mom walking down the aisle and my mom made eye contact with her and my mom who was just simply wanting to sleep this rest of the flight home has this lady come and sit right next to her right next to her. An open plane, and the lady comes and just sits down right next to her. And she sees in my mom's travel bag that my mom's got this book. I forget the title of it, but it was a, a Christian book, it was, and, and obviously Christian. And uh, so the lady says something about the book, and my mom explains to her salvation. And this lady proceeds to say, she said, on the previous flight that I was on, I sat next to this gentleman, and he was, he was telling me about Jesus. And he told me, he said, on your next flight, you'll sit next to someone who will explain the rest of it. So mom explains salvation. This lady, my understanding today, is still a believer. This happened many years ago. But my dad picked up my mom at the airport. My mom uh, says to my dad, says, Don, I want you to meet, I don't know the lady's name, so-and-so. And And, um, she's just become a believer. God uses people that we come in contact with to help bring about transformation in their lives. We can't just hope and expect that God's going to transform everybody without, without using us. He wants to use us. And in the same sense, God is using Barnabas. And Barnabas helps Saul become the great apostle Paul. Now he's working with his young cousin John Mark. And John Mark um, uh, is with them. But listen to what happens in Acts chapter thirteen? Acts chapter 13 and verse 13 says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, this may seem like an innocuous statement right here, where John left them. Doesn't seem to be that big a deal but we'll learn later in scripture this was a very big deal to Paul. The Apostle Paul had no room in his life for slackers. Whether John Mark simply got homesick, the scriptures the Scriptures don't say. But he did not finish the first missionary journey with them. So When you look at missionary journey one on the map and you see Pamphylia, you know that's where John Mark then headed back to Jerusalem to go home. And Paul and Barnabas continue the rest of their missionary journey. Well, what's interesting is Paul and Barnabas are growing in their relationship with each other they've experienced a lot of um, ministry um, setbacks on this first missionary journey. Okay, there were some, they were met with some real challenges, some life-threatening situations when you read through all of the situations. But in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, makes this statement. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, I'm in verse 36, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So basically, Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go on our second missionary journey. Let's go back and visit all of those churches that we did on the first. And, you know, Barnabas knowing some of these were life-threatening and now you want to go back. But Barnabas is all in, 100%. I mean, he totally is on board. And so they begin, Paul and Barnabas, begin making plans for their second missionary journey. This is where a problem arises. Look at chapter 15, verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Now, isn't this interesting? Um, In chapter 13, verse 13, the words were where John left them. But now it's because he had deserted them. A little bit different than just where he had left, but this is now Paul's perspective. Paul is feeling like, there's no way that John Mark is coming with us on this second missionary uh, journey. He he's a slacker. He's a quitter. I, I, why would you invest in someone like that? Aren't you glad for second chances? Aren't you glad? Like I don't know where you're at in your life. Uh, you know, just things that you've done. But uh, I'm I'm one who just thanks the Lord that uh, boy. I'm just not. I I I I'm not judged. Uh, based on my failures, and here is Paul, and that's what Paul's doing is he's, he's looking at, uh, at at John Mark and thinking, this guy is a loser. But what's really interesting right here is is that they um, they are at such odds with one another that. Um, This is where strife enters into this relationship. This relationship that you really, one would think, could not be broken. Look at verse 39. It says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left. And you may look at this and think, how tragic you know that this this close bond, this close relationship, this rift in this relationship that's all over john mark that's that's the cause of this rift in this relationship, but Barnabas and Saul had such a sharp disagreement that they that they split up, but now look at this this is a hard concept sometimes I think for the church to grasp that God uses the disagreements in life to bring about his purposes. Instead of there being one missionary team that is going out now, there are two. This thing has just doubled exponentially over a dispute. How could good come out of something that's a dispute? How can two men that are spirit-filled believers, um, how can they who don't see eye to eye, how can they be walking in the Spirit? How can God be glorified in these missionary journeys when they're holding so much strife against one another that they said, uh, John Mark, you, 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 know, you go with Barnabas, and, and Paul says, I'm, I'm taking Silas. We'll see you later. And they go two different directions. But when you read the Scriptures and you read about those trips, you see that man, there were many people that came into relationship with Jesus Christ. And so here's this, this point about friendship that um, I find really fascinating because in, in, in friendship I made the statement at the very outset that sometimes with forgiveness in the church we, we, we can tend to treat it like, like it's optional. Like, okay, if it's convenient for me, then I will forgive. If it's not convenient, hey, you you hurt me, so, you know, deal with it. And I think there's a lot of people that just kind of live their lives that way. How many people do, like, do you know uh, friendships that are no longer friendships today because there's something that happened in that relationship? And uh, maybe family members that are estranged, okay? Because there's something in the past that happened and because of it, it's like, hey, this is on them. It's not me. This was their choice, not mine. Well, listen to what the scripture says. Let me show you this. So this is kind of a message within a message here. So pardon kind of the, um, um, well, I don't want to call it a rabbit trail because it's, it's not, it all ties in. Matthew chapter 5 Verses twenty-three and twenty-four. Listen to what the scripture says here. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Okay, now look at this verse of scripture right here, and you know, would you define this person as the offended? or the offender, Uh, look at it. It says, remember that, and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you. If they've got something against you, that means that you have done something to offend them. You are the offender in this case. You've done something, whether it's right or wrong, you've done something and your brother or your sister has something against you. You are the offender. Scripture says, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled. But then you turn to the gospel according to Mark. Chapter 11 and um, verse 25. And it says this. Oh, and let me just mention this before I read this, okay? John Mark is the author. That's who John Mark is. So when we're talking about the fourth person here that Paul sees as a slacker, writes the gospel according to Mark. I, I, I think the guy proved himself, you know? And so this isn't like pointing fingers at Saul, Paul saying, you're wrong, that Barnabas was right. Indeed, Barnabas was right to invest in him but this is John Mark. And John Mark, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 25 says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone. Now, I'll come back to that sentence. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. But if you do not forgive neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, first of all, let me mention, if you're reading out of the NIV, the NIV does not have verse 26. And that's not a typo uh, in your Bible. It's just showing that um, uh, the the NIV was drawn from an earlier transcript that does not, it, it omits verse 26. So, here is John Mark, who pins this after the fact of uh, not um, being invited to go with Paul on the second missionary journey. And it, he says, um, uh, you know, and, and, uh, he pins, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Heavenly Father can forgive you. If you have anything against anyone means you're the offended. You have something against someone has done something to you. They've offended you. So what the scripture says is whether you're the offender or the offended, the responsibility is yours to forgive. It makes no difference which side of the fence you're on. If there is an offense that has taken place it is your responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ to forgive that offense. Now that doesn't mean you condone the behavior. It doesn't mean that you have to start hanging out at Starbucks. It simply means that you forgive. You, you forgive, you put this under the blood of Jesus Christ. And friends, some of us, I would suspect in this room, have somebody that needs our forgiveness to just forgive, let it go, to just say, I forgive. So what is really interesting is as you read through the whole story in the book of Acts, we don't get to read the rest of the story about the relationship being restored between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. So the real beef is Paul to John Mark. That's that's where the real strife took place. Even though it was Paul and Barnabas that split ways, it was over John Mark. Bible scholars believe that 2 Timothy was the last words penned by the Apostle Paul. Now, when you have all of Paul's writings, from, um, from Romans to Philemon, all of his books are placed together in the New Testament. But they're, they're, they're put together in such a way that it's the longest first to the shortest. Philemon is his shortest. They're not given to us in chronological order. 2 Timothy is the last chronological order of Paul's writings. And the reason that is so interesting is, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. And and listen to what this says. Paul, after he's met everybody that he's met in life, after his ministry has impacted so many people, says only Luke, this is uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. He asks for John Mark. The very last person that he asks for is bring John Mark to me. He's helpful to me. So we know that this relationship was restored it was repaired. Friends can't stay at odds with friends and still call yourself a believer. Friends, that may sound judgmental, uh, but that's what the scripture says. If, if, If this person's a friend of yours, or they used to be a friend of yours, and now they're no longer a friend because whatever, you know, again, it doesn't condone The behavior of whatever happened that caused the rift, no. But it's incumbent upon us that we forgive one another so that we can be forgiven. Well, there's one common denominator in the lives of all of these men. Uh, their, Their lives were all transformed through the godly influence of other people, all of them. Transformation is really interesting because um, transformation does not prove that someone's teachings are, are true. And this is a very interesting point. Transformation only proves that the transformed person believes the teachings to be true. So what makes your transformation any different from any follower of Islam, of Buddhism, uh, a yeah, fill-in-the-blank, any world, any world religion you want to put at this point. What makes your transformation my transformation? What makes it different than anyone else's? And there's a simple answer to this. It's not that we're better. It's not that you know somehow we're special. What makes our transformation different from anyone else's transformation is the simplicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a theology, a doctrine, that nobody else embraces. Only Christianity. They may embrace forms or portions of the truth. And I've seen it happen where... I had a a, a son when he was in high school, and I remember this son coming in um, one evening, and I said, Hey, Clint, uh, go get your Bible so that we, um, I want to read from your, he got a new uh, Bible, um, and I wanted him to read from it for our family devotions that evening. He comes upstairs at the dinner table with the Book of Mormon, and um, I'm a pastor. You know, and so uh, I I think maybe a little bit of a shock factor. I'm going to shock my dad right here. And he brings to me the Book of Mormon. I said, Clint, where'd you get this? And he said, one of my friends at school uh, recently gave this to me. I said, let's do our devotion from the Book of Mormon. We opened it up. And I don't remember the passage. Uh, But I will tell you, the passage that I read, I believed every word of it. It, it was consistent with the Word of God, absolutely consistent. But then I was able to sh- share with him, you know, that, hey, look at the book of Galatians. And, 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 and let's look at what Galatians has to say about, about this, that if anyone preaches a gospel, anything different than what is being presented to you here, may, may they be accursed. And I said, and then we went through some other passages where we said, you know, we don't believe this. This is different. And so I look at this and I I feel like, you know, all other religions, they'll embrace forms of truth, but only Christianity embraces the resurrected Jesus Christ. If you take the resurrection away from us and our story and our faith, you've taken everything. We are left with nothing. The Apostle Paul, I don't have time to read 1 Corinthians 15 to you, but if you read 1 Corinthians 15, it will say basically verbatim that this faith of ours is useless if you strip from it the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so friends, I want to leave you with this here today that some of you have relationships with Someone, maybe they used to be closer than they are now because of something that's happened. And I just want to encourage you. You may have a son, a daughter, a mother, father, or a sister. I don't know, just a, a close family relation to you. And the relationship is strained. And, uh, you know, you have had a hard time just letting that go and just forgiving that person for what they've done. I want to pray with you. Can I just invite you to bow your heads and to close your eyes? I want to, I want to lead in prayer here today, and I I, I want to pray that, indeed, that you would find heart, uh, you would find room in your heart to forgive those that need forgiveness, and that. Well, let's let, let's do this right here with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Let me just ask you this right here. Is there someone here, and I'm not going to single you out. and embarrass, I promise I will not embarrass anyone in the room here, okay? Is there someone here with your head bowed and eyes closed that would just say, Pastor Randy, would you just pray for me? There's, there is a situation. I'm having a difficult time forgiving. I want God to just forgive. Okay, I see, I, I see some hands going up here. Is there anybody else? You just say, that's that's me. I just need to, there's just something I need to let go of in the name of Jesus Christ. I wonder if there's someone in here that you just know that you're not in a proper relationship with Jesus Christ. Does it mean that you weren't at one time? um, And maybe if people in this church saw your hand up, they would be shocked because they think that you've got it all together. But you deep down know, you're not right where you should be with Jesus Christ. Is that you and you would like to make it right? Again, I'm not going to single you out. I just want to pray over you. Is there anyone here you would just make that confession? I'm not where I should be with Jesus and I want to make that right today. Would you just raise a hand and put it right back down that I could pray with you? Anybody here? Heavenly Father, as I look around, Lord, I... I've seen hands that have been raised and you know the specifics behind that raised hands. And so God, I would just pray for each person here, for those that are just not in a proper relationship with you. Father God, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw them close. The scriptures say that if we believe in our heart Confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, that if we confess that, that we will be saved. So, Lord, for anyone who's not where they should be, may they make that confession today. For those that need that space, that help to forgive, Lord, we can't do it in and of ourselves. We need you. And I would just ask that you would just give us that strength, Lord, to be able to say to those who either we have offended or who have offended us, that in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just pray for Cornerstone Church of Parker for your rich blessing, your hedge to be around this church, for Pastor Mike, Jamie, God, you would just continue to anoint them as they lead this congregation. Bless this church, I pray, Father. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank you for listening to this Sunday service webcast from Cornerstone Church of Parker in Parker, Colorado. We hope that His truth has enriched your life and inspires you to greater works in God's kingdom. We invite you to worship with us in our Sunday morning service, or join in our other ministry events posted on cornerstonechurchofparker.org. Cornerstone Church, built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, and connecting people to God, each other, and to our world.